Welcome to Adverse Reactions. I'm David Faulkner. And I'm Anne Chappelle. I'm a toxicologist and a risk assessor. And I am a toxicologist who thinks that Mr. Yuck was a great idea. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> you don't know who Mr. Yuck was? I have just shown my age. Seriously, you don't know who Mr. Yuck is. I'm looking it up. They were little green stickers that you would put on your... Right, right. This is entirely novel to me. <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs> Don't be terrified. All right. Don't be afraid. And on this show, we explore the stories behind the science. This is where we talk to toxicology experts from around the country and around the globe that use the field of toxicology to advance public health and also to protect the environment. Day. Speak softly and carry a big data set. The Exposome. Well, the toxicology was a quest to learn about why is it that people who work in these occupations live in these specific situations, why are they more predisposed to disease than those that don't? That's just been my life's work, my life's mantra. It's Dr. Daryl Hood of the Ohio State University. That was me 40 years ago. A little naive kid didn't know what they wanted to do. But if you can somehow turn that light bulb on, we've got to invest a little bit more in that area with respect to underrepresented minorities and bringing them into the construct. Because they're, we call them diamonds in the rough. They're out there. We are joined today by Dr. Daryl Hood from Ohio State University, College of Public Health. He is a tenured associate professor in the College of Public Health Departments of Neuroscience and Environmental Health Sciences, former professor at Meharry, a medical college, and all around fascinating person. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, David and Anne, for having me. I noticed that when David was describing your background and, and your affiliations, I didn't hear really the word toxicology in there directly. So could you explain a little bit about your research and its focus and how it relates back to toxicology? I often get that. And so Meharry Medical College is in Nashville, Tennessee. And what David didn't bring out is the fact that Meharry and Vanderbilt have an alliance. Subsequent to my PhD, I was trained at um, Vanderbilt University for my postdoc, and it was in the Center for Molecular Toxicology. And at Meharry Medical College, I was able to start and build an inhalation research facility. Over the course of the next 30 years, all of my work was considered as the translational correlate for the work that's being done at the Mailman School of Public Health. And that, of course, would be the impact of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons on um, systems, a reproductive system, as well as the central nervous system. And so therein lies sort of the seed from which we blossom. And, and so all of the work with benzopyrene and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that the West Harlem Environmental Action Group, that would be in Washington Heights and Harlem, connected to the Columbia University of Mailman. All of that epidemiology, my job was to look at the molecular level events that were observed in those populations to find out what was going on in terms of defining key mechanistic adverse outcome pathways from the inhalational route. And so then the reproductive system primarily and the central nervous system. 
Very cool. Very cool. I was looking through your publications list and you've got such an incredible range of things that you've published on areas of public health. Benzoipyrene, as you mentioned, health disparities in black and minority communities at the exposome. What is the unifying theme or a constant throughout your research? If I had to choose one, the unifying theme would be that these adverse or disparate health outcomes that we see out in America in low census tract areas, and even in some cases in high census tract areas, tend to be for the most part place based. And by that, I'm referring to the fact that there's a social ecological life paradigm at work. And that's what you referred to a few minutes ago as the public health exposome. Although physiologically, we have mechanisms that govern adverse outcome pathways, they are exacerbated by place. The reason why we haven't sort of made any significant progress on dampening disparate health outcomes in America is because we've been looking at this from a skewed perspective. And my epidemiological friends will appreciate the fact now that we've taken the time to sort of introduce a new framework that isn't trying to supplant conventional study design in epidemiology. It runs in parallel with that. Our design takes a social ecological life course approach, and with it comes big data to analytics, which means that we use combinatorial algorithms, and in some cases, parametric and non-parametric statistical methodologies coupled with paracletes. It's a new horizon, and we are very, very comfortable um, with where we are right now in terms of this new paradigm and framework. The concept of the, the exposome has come up a few times. There's all these ohms, metabolome, the genome, proteome. Can you just expand on the exposome idea a bit more? And so when we talk about the public health exposome, we are referring to not the endoexposome. Heretofore, if you look at the literature and the historical literature, it tends to look inward. That's what you were referring to. We're talking about the ectoexposome where people live, work, play, and pray, and how the built natural, physical, and social environment influences those particular pathways. That is the public health exposome. We have amassed a database with about 25,000 environmental factors and variables there. It took us eight years to curate all of the publicly available data sets, and they're now in one place in our data bank there in Nashville at Meharry Medical College. So how, thinking globally, do we do it different in the U.S.? Are we the model for how to think about environmental justice? Or are you modeling the way that you're collecting the data and assembling it off of another country? Because we can't be the only ones that are dealing with these kinds of issues in terms of the disparity in different out health outcomes. That's true. And that's a very good point. Various countries in Europe have done a very good job. One example in the UK, early life exposures lead to later life outcomes, adverse outcomes, right? The Barker hypothesis. But ours is a bit different. The land use in America is a little bit different. America is different. And so what we had to do was actually curate and get all of this information into one place. We had a few grants from the National Institutes of Minority Health and then the US EPA, you know, STAR grants 
and things of that nature that have allowed us to, over that period of time, get all of this data in one place. Very, very exciting, innovative, and novel about our approach is the analytics that we couple to that framework. Our public health exposome is a social ecological life course approach to disparate health outcomes. And then you add um, big data to knowledge analytics on that when you were talking about complex networks and invasion analysis and paraclete combinatorial algorithms that give you sets of related nodes, which is all that a paraclete is. When you have so much data, you're going to be able to sort of reveal latent interactions and associations. Now, we aren't quite there um, with respect to causal inference, but we're going to get there. That will happen very, very shortly. In the past, as I understand it, some of your, your data sets have been used to inform the way that the, the federal government tracks things like smokestack output and, and some of the benzoate-pyrene work there and the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon work has been used to inform sort of federal databases and standards looking at those kinds of measurements. Yeah, you know, you look at Columbia University, the Melbourne School of Public Health, what they've been able to do with respect to interfacing with underrepresented communities and getting the epidemiology out there. And, and then, of course, my laboratory in Nashville, you know, using benzopyrene um, as a surrogate, if you will, a proxy for overt environmental pollution and us working out the molecular level pathways that led to central nervous system dysfunction and reproductive system dysfunction. The EPA uses our data from both institutions. My laboratory was very, very well represented in the decisions and policy changes. So yeah, we're, we're very proud of that. So yes, one can impact policy from the laboratory using rodents and various experimental model systems. But now, of course, you see we pivoted to people and communities. And how is that going to translate? And so, you know, your career, it comes full circle. Absolutely. Actually, that brings me to benzoipyrene. How did you settle on benzoipyrene as a, a chemical of interest? And what was your career path to get you to where you are now? Good question. I often am called to travel around the country and give a talk as to how did you get to where you are? And the title of mine is Beginning Your Career with the end in mind. Life does come full circle. I went to a very, very small Presbyterian college in Charlotte, North Carolina, Johnson C. Smith University, HBCU. My dad worked there for 37 years. My grandmother got very, very ill when I was at the end of my freshman year, and we were attempting to communicate with the physicians, and no one seemed to be able to I said, well, somebody has to be able to interface with these positions. I better learn a little bit more about biology. I made up my mind at the end of my freshman year, I was going to major in biology. And so there were these programs that were specifically focused on underrepresented minorities, programs like the research centers in minority institutions programs the programs such as the Minority Access to Research Careers, programs like MBRS, the Minority Biomedical Support Program. I was accepted into those programs, and that opened up a whole nother realm to me. There are no scientists prior to me and my family. I just 
you know, started taking general biology, general chemistry. I was able to then get somewhat of a vocabulary in terms of the lexicon that these physicians use in terms of, you know, trying to explain to you what's happening to your grandmother. Unfortunately, as is the case back then, I mean, this was 1981 or so, my grandmother succumbed, of course, to that cancer. But that just gave me and undergirded my quest for learning about science and, and, and the mechanisms which caused her to go downhill over a course of two and a half years. My grandfather, her husband worked in a foundry for 50 some years. I remember the smell of creosote on him when he came home from work. And then he came home and then he worked the farm. And my mother sent us down there to work, to learn about discipline in the summer. The discipline, it instilled enable me to sort of, after Johnson C. Smith, go to East Tennessee State University, Quillen Dishner College of Medicine. You went to school with medical students, so you were in their classes, so biochemistry. That was eye-opening for me. That's where I got my PhD, the first African-American, of course. There have been a lot of firsts in my life. Yeah, I was a plaintiff in Brown versus Board of Education. Wow. Really? Yeah. Through Swan wow. versus Charlotte Mecklenburg School of Education, so one of those test cases. My mom and father were civil rights leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina. Daddy being a Presbyterian minister, marched with Martin Luther King several times. Um, all of my family, you know, civil rights leaders. And so it's sort of in your DNA. And that's why I've ended up in this diversity and inclusive excellence. So the toxicology was a quest to learn about why is it that people who work in these occupations live in these specific situations, why are they more predisposed to disease than those that don't? That's just been my life's work, my life's mantra Incredible. in terms of looking at some of these issues and trying to uh, illuminate some of these causes um, behind these disparities. Coal-fired electrical power plants, benzopyrene. And how that happened, David, was a result of the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. The goal, the mission of ATSDR is to fill priority data gaps. And they felt at the time that BAP, benzopyrene, would be a good surrogate for all of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And so they gave us a grant. We won a grant to create a facility, an inhalation facility, where you would then be able to test and do uh, multi-generational studies, which had not been done at that time. We fashioned an inhalation facility at an HBCU. I'm still the only one of its kind in the country at Meharry Medical College. I was given a book a few years ago called Apprentice to Genius, and it talked a lot about the role of mentorship and that ripple effect of people being open to and excited about your research and finding ways to integrate their topics with what you're doing. And I think that that mentorship and being a good example for how to find ways to push your science forward when you've hit a wall. And that's what it seems like you've been able to do and convince people that this investment will really bring the big returns. How do you translate that passion to others effectively? It comes as a result of you yourself, that individual, having those individuals that you spoke about, a very, very close-knit team. And by that, I mean someone that is very, very tough on you at certain times in, in your career, where you can go to, someone who you can go to and cry. They let you cry on their shoulders after 
you receive that pink sheet back from the study section. And then one that at the same time, while you're crying, thrust you up onto the platform at SOT into a platform presentation to sort of reinvigorate that uh, confidence in you. And then, of course, you have the quintessential individual that's just your colleague who you can talk to about things and, and, and that gives you that differential advice that only comes after time. And I had those types of mentors and I tried to be that to whatever role I need to play to the individuals that are coming up through the CDI program at Society of Toxicology. That was me 40 years ago. A little naive kid didn't know what they wanted to do. But if you can somehow turn that light bulb on during the weekend when they come up. That is why we know we have to make some enhanced investments at that level. We've got to invest a little bit more in that area with respect to underrepresented minorities and bringing them into the construct because they're, we call them diamonds in the rough. They're out there. And if someone lit your fire and you had good mentors and it's incumbent upon us to be good mentors to that generation because that pipeline is really drying up. I mean, I am somewhat disenchanted, I would say, by how graduate students these days are opting not for academia. I didn't go into academia not because I don't like to teach because I love to teach and inspire. I didn't go into academia because I didn't want to fight for grant money. Yeah. Yes. It's your disposition that we all have, the individual disposition. So what stress did I want? I got recruited by companies A, B, and C. Now, what do you want to be responsible for? You want to be responsible for potentially a $5 billion drug coming down the line as a senior scientist, and then something happened? Well, you know, so it's all a matter of what is your allostatic load potential? You know, how much stress can, what type of stress can you handle best? And for me, writing a grant, I'm like, oh, hey, I'll take that any day of the week. Plus my wife, very, very inflexible career. She did not have any flexibility. You know, she had to go to work. One of us had to have some flexibility. In academia, my kids have twins, one on the front, one on the back, and they followed me everywhere around the campus. That's great. This might be a tougher question, but it's something that I'm very curious about. The census data shows that 13.4% of the U.S. population is Black, but only about 6% of tenured or tenure-track faculty post-secondary institutions in the U.S. Do you feel you know, additional pressure to provide mentorship or to publish? I've read some articles of people feeling additional pressure. It's like, we have this diversity in initiative at the university. You know, Where's our Black faculty member? singular, like, you know, put them on it. <laughs> that is so true. And yet the answer is yes, but it's how you handle that. So as a junior faculty member, remember I was at Meharry Medical College. It was very, very supportive. It's the greatest African-American health science center in America. And so that was undergirded by a support system. I had that there. Everything was very, very structured and got it done. Now, I would not put that burden on a junior faculty member at a high resource institution like the Ohio State University. See, that would be a thankless task here. Now, I do it here because there's no pressure. But for a junior faculty person to be tapped, to have that extra burden, it's already a series of microaggressions, macroaggressions, 
I mean, implicit bias. These things are real at majority institutions for underrepresented minority scientists. For an example, I'm the only African-American male in the College of Public Health here. Now, um, excuse me, this is 2021, but with the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement and all of these attacks on my Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, I think there's a recognition now that the academy cannot continue as it has been. And there are all types of initiatives coming down the pike that will address structural inequality. Ohio State has announced an initiative it's called um, Inspire and seeks to hire hundreds of underrepresented minorities over the next seven, eight years or so. You know, Ohio State is huge. So we have every department, unit, college you ever want to see here. And so we'll see. I am famously impatient. I think a lot of America is impatient. And that's to me one of the inherent problems is that they're willing to make an investment now and it's time, but are we all willing to wait the right amount of time to really see that blossom? It is this long process that I hope that America begins to develop the patience to fully realize this investment and be able to really reap those incredible people that are growing as a result of these initiatives. But I get afraid that it's just a trend and, you know, oh yeah, we, we put some money at it. We'll fix it. It's bigger than that. It is bigger than that. And you are 100% right. I mean, you know, this isn't an activity. It's a culture change, right? And, and, and unfortunately, not enough individuals understand that here at the Ohio State University, we believe that the people are already out there. So what about partnerships? Why can't we forge partnerships between low resource institutions and high resource institutions? You see, there's your pipeline right there. That is what we are pushing here in NIH. The first initiative was emblematic of that sentiment. Many of the institutions chose not to partner. So, I mean, that's not good, right? That's right. getting off on the wrong foot. I mean, it's not going to work if you think it's just fashionable to throw this money at this. It requires a culture change. And, and we are working on that here. So of the questions that we try to ask everybody, what was the most significant adverse reaction that you've experienced in your life? Oh, let's see. In my life. Wow, that's tough. I guess the worst adverse reaction was the fact that coming from Johnson C. Smith University and going to graduate school, I would be the only one that looked like me in my program. And that was a moment in time where I knew that I would need some assistance, help, and support in making it through that program. And believe it or not, subsequent to coming here in the biggest underrepresented minority program in America, uh, here at the Ohio State University, I met a young lady from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We kept in touch after spending a week here. That was in 1982. And when we finished, and she worked a year, and we were, of course, dating. And I actually said, honey, don't you want to get a graduate degree? You can come here. And she actually applied and came and the rest is history. So that adverse reaction turned into something extremely very positive for me and my wife and the kids, of course. 
So if you weren't where you are now, what would you be doing? Everyone that knows me says that I would be a preacher on a corner <laughs> in an African-American neighborhood. I'm a very, very spiritual person. My daddy was a minister. His daddy was a minister. His daddy was a preacher. You know, some of these things are, they're in the genes, right? <laughs> but like for me, even though I don't get to live my dream as a college professor, I still find a way to teach. In a way, you've been able to blend it just a little, a little differently. Yes. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you all. This is so much fun. I love talking. You do love talking. That's true. Maybe you weren't supposed to say that. My kids don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. And it is so neat and awesome. And every other trivial word to just really pick somebody's brain. And thank you for spending your morning with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. I'm so glad we got to talk with Daryl today. That was an incredible interview. You know, we called the episode Speak Softly and Carry a Big Data Set, but I think he speaks from the heart. He speaks with wisdom and, and experience. Yeah, it, it's not just wisdom and experience. He speaks with conviction. The data sets that he's put together over the years are really astounding, and I'm so excited to see how they're going to be used to make real meaningful changes in public health. So yes, it was great to talk to Daryl. Now I can't wait to tell you about who we're gonna speak to next. And now the teaser. Next time, more than a color scheme, the future of toxicology in green chemistry. With Meg Whitaker of Tox Services LLC. A big interest of mine right now is how to connect safer chemistry, safer or green toxicology and sustainability and how we can try and make things more circular. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at adversereactionspodcast.com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. Hopefully at least half of you make it back for the next episode. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom. Mm -hmm.